I'm now going to explain the four higher jhanas of the immaterial plane, non-material plane. And actually, they, in the progression of the development of a person, they would come before the insight steps, which I have already explained. Now, the reason I took the insight steps first was that it was the fourth foundation of mindfulness, the mind content, which contains the Noble Eightfold Path, and so I used the first step, right view, in order to use it for the insight steps. But, in a in, in actuality, the jhanas are always explained before the inside steps are explained. Although, again, in the Noble Eightfold Path, as you have seen, the inside comes first, enough inside to get going, and then the concentration is last but because it can be looked upon as a circular movement when the concentration which is an eighth, po uh, eighth step on the Noble Eightfold Path is um, sufficient then the absolute insight arises so we've had an explanation of the four fine material jhanas the rupa jhanas rupa actually means materiality but in connection with the word jhana, it means fine material, fine material plane. And the other four should have come immediately after that. But I, as I explained, I've put the insight in between. The rupa jhanas are the fine material plane because they have a connection to states of mind, and emotion which are in a less refined way known to us. We do know those states of mental emotional um, experiences but not in that refined way. Now the immaterial jhanas, the next four, are called that because they concern states of experience which are unknown to us unless we med meditate. And of course the explanation will never do justice to the experience. The experience has to be made in order to know what it's all about, in order to gain the benefit from it. However, the Buddha did explain them very briefly usually again with that thought in mind one should assume that if you don't have the experience you don't know what it's all about anyway so you might as well just have the knowledge of it the information so that you then can get the experience the names of these four jhanas of the immaterial plane are infinity of space, infinity of consciousness, base of nothingness, 
and neither perception nor non-perception. Now even the names already indicate that the experience is not connected to any anything that would happen to us at any time in our daily lives. Whereas the pleasant sensations of the first jhana, the joy, the uh, peacefulness, the first three, we would know in lesser quality and lesser quantity also in ordinary life probably triggered through sense contact well has to be triggered through sense contact but at least there is some of that available to us the fourth one the um, complete one-pointedness and immersion in stillness would not be available in a daily in daily life and could not possibly be available and yet it is still part of the first four the rupa jhanas probably this division is made in that way because it is a follow-on from the third one now the other four the next four are all a follow-on from the fourth one they are often described as an extension of the fourth jhana of the one that is complete stillness but it often happens no it sometimes happens that people go to fifth sixth jhana from the third because the third jhana is a beginning of the fourth naturally and it has some of the aspects of the fourth the stillness so it sometimes the fourth one is more difficult to get into but one should never um, do without it because it is the one that one and the eighth are the two that give the most energy to the mind it is the best clearing house for the mind those two now the fifth, sixth and seventh are also called vipassana jhanas insight jhanas so they have calm and insight embedded in them this was of course also the case with the particularly with the second one when one is no longer dependent upon outside triggers to have inner joy and also of course with the third one that one doesn't have to be involved in anything outside of oneself because peace is within but still those first four often have an aspect of clinging to them especially when one isn't practiced when one starts with them and doesn't practiced then they go away and the mind says oh what a pity I want this back and then the mind says oh this is terrible I can't get them 
I'll have to go somewhere else to get them, it's not quiet enough, it's not nice enough, and all the rest of it. One absolutely has to have them. So this clinging aspect is a very material um, characteristic. We cling. With the higher jhanas, the clinging is highly unlikely because they have insight embedded in them, uh, automatic insight. So that's why they are called the inside jhanas and the first four are not. This clinging to them does, this, oh sorry, the not clinging to them does not mean not to do them. That's like throwing out the baby with the bath water. One keeps the baby, but one changes the bath water. Not to do them is foolishness, if one can do them. But to cling to them is the human aspect of our greed and hate uh, psychology, which is so deeply embedded, as you heard last night, that it is only the non-returner who is rid of it. So this um, depth of craving naturally extends to that. But it is much better to have a craving on clinging to the first four jhanas than it is to sex, alcohol, um, uh, entertainment, or one's own dukkha, or whatever else one is craving or clinging to. So, not to do them is foolishness, because eventually the mind becomes purified enough through doing them, so that it does give up clinging little by little. This um, clinging and craving for the higher jhanas is not um, apparent because of the insight which arises and also because they don't have joy and peace in them. That's left behind already in the fourth one. But the fourth one has so much stillness that it is very uh, desirable usually. But the next ones don't have any of that. So the, the fifth one, as an extension of the fourth one, the mind has become so one-pointed that it does not have its attention on anything other than that one-pointedness. And then, because of that, it is malleable, pliable, expandable, and expands. And the way it happens can be different for different people. The result is always the same, but it very often starts out with an extension of one's own personal body. Now, if one feels like a balloon, that's not it. It's not that at all. Or if one all of a sudden feels big, that's not it at all. In the, in, out of the fourth jhana, the body consciousness is diffuse. The outline of the body is no longer exact as it is now. We know exactly where this body is sitting and, and how big it is. That is totally lost. It's a diffuse body consciousness. 
And with that diffuseness comes then either deliberately or because the mind has that uh, intention embedded in it to expand and this is a very natural um, intention this is also why people do go for more knowledge and more education and more things to see and to hear because there is that very natural craving in the mind to expand so then when that happens and it can be done deliberately all of these jhanas can be done deliberately in fact the Buddha explains like this that one realizes that this particular jhana is also not um, totally satisfying so let's go to the next one so the mind has that uh, intention in it the expansion from the body outward and upward is usually a, a very common experience and then when there is a like a barrier to go further it's the common experience that the sky is used as what one actually has in the mind what the sky the size of the sky because we have very limited vision so we have a certain size of sky and then that expansion from there now the Buddha does it even more analytical and in more detail starts out with one tree and lets one tree leave it, leaves it behind and then leaves the forest behind one house leaves all the houses behind and so it's a very much more gradual way he explains that but in experience it's usually not necessary because the forest jhana has made the mind so um, expandable and so malleable that it's no difficulty to start with oneself and recognize this expansion and go to sometimes it's not necessary to go to the sky uh, if necessary go to the sky and have that expansion from there the result no matter what one does whether it's spontaneous or deliberate whether one uses uh, trees houses people uh, then the globe leaving the globe behind the universe that can also be done it's also possible to do that way the result is always the same that all that remains as the in awareness is infinity of space just space with nothing in it and space whatever it appears to be it has neither color nor shape nor form nor sound nor does it have any content so again one can say what it doesn't have but one can't say what it has one's got to bite into the mango and who doesn't do that um, doesn't get these higher stages into the meditative experience should take that into account that samma samadhi right concentration means the ajanas that's all it means nothing else and this is part of the path so whatever else one is doing and whatever else one thinks is important the mind cannot gain the 
insight into the depth and profundity of the ground of being until the mind has been become so capable of doing these or having these experiences which are far beyond the ordinary everyday experience. The infinity of space with nothing in it, without color, shape or form, and without barrier or border, boundary, when the meditator comes out of that, it's no longer uh, the usual understanding that that too is impermanent because it doesn't look very impermanent but what the understanding is automatically is I experienced it but I wasn't in it there is no person in that now obviously that helps enormously in order to finally give up this self idea that we carry around with us Having had the experience that there's nobody there makes it quite clear that this is the truth. Now, it's not being unconscious. It's not being asleep. When we're asleep, we don't know that we're there. When we're unconscious, we don't know we're there. This, we are totally aware and awake, conscious, but the experience is one without division. There are no divisions in that space. That also helps, this one or the next one, or both, both of them, help one to have the realization that one's own idea of this puny little person separate from everything else is also an illusion, and one which certainly hurts. This is why we lock our windows and doors, have burglar alarms, have uh, dogs that bark and lock our hearts and have burglar alarms attached to them in case somebody wants to get in who doesn't just seem the right kind of person. And this is the ordinary experience, all locked up. And if it gets too locked up, we call it uptight. Now, unless one has the experience of totality, everybody's uptight. Everybody locks himself up against everybody else. But this totality experience, which has nothing to do with Nibbana, it's not a Nibbanic experience, it's a totality experience, makes it quite clear to the mind, especially if it's done several times. The first time it may, might not make anything clear. It might just give the mind something to be uh, surprised about. Minds are very um, easily uh, surprised at something new. And many minds can't handle anything new. We have two kinds, actually, one could say. There is a kind of mind that, if it's really something brand new, doesn't want to have anything to do with it. It seems unsafe. That's the kind of person that really wants to lock her or himself up because that seems safe to be locked up. That's why we lock everything. Keys, people have keys galore 
Keyrings is one of the most uh, uh, bought souvenirs in every country. Everybody buys keyrings because they got so many keys to put on. So that feels safe. It's totally unsafe, of course, because any time somebody can break in. But and because it appears to be safe and is in actuality quite unsafe, it's with, connected to fear. So that kind of person is not very keen on anything new. They'd rather stick to the old stuff that they already have locked up and they feel that that's all right. And then there's the other kind of person that, with the, the other extremes, these are extremes, and we can always find ourselves in the middle there somewhere. Um, the other one which is very extreme is the one that thinks that they've done it. They're thinking it. And then when one thinks it, that's also not the experience, because doesn't, the thinking itself may be the intention. That's okay. That's fine. But there are those people who think, just think it, and the experience escapes them. So it has to be the reality of the experience. And these are both extremes. One thinks, well, I can do anything. No, I, I, all you can do, I can do better than you, or whatever. And the other person doesn't want any part of this, wants to stay where they are. The infinity of space in which there is no separate person to be found and no separate thing, nothing can be found which is separate except space, makes it then clear to the mind after one has done it several times that this is a reality which belongs to a different plane of consciousness. And in that reality, because one can touch upon it and be in it for some time, one recognizes afterwards the fact that all this separation is the cause for our miseries. These separations breed the fear of the other entity, and with the fear comes aggression. And with this aggression, we not only have shooting wars, we have inner wars, and we have also the aggression towards our natural environment. We are aggressive towards our trees and our soil and all the rest of it. And this aggression is then found in everything because of the fear of because we feel separated. Now that may not even be conscious, but it is a natural progression of this separation because how can I make sure that nothing and nobody is going to get at this which I'm trying to protect? So when I open this up, body and mind, and recognize that it is part of the whole and that there's nobody there that is separate, at that moment the protection syndrome disappears. I don't have to protect it because it's the whole and I can't protect the whole universe. So what am I trying to protect? And when that protection syndrome disappears, the fear disappears with it. And then with the fear disappearing, the aggression disappears. Fear is the um, usually, one can say probably um, most of the time, the cause for aggression. 
it can be greed but uh, fear is more more common and so with that disappearance this particular insight makes already the whole syndrome of the purification of one's emotions much easier because if we want to experience loving kindness compassion and equanimity and joy with others the four brahma viharas are discuss them at another time it's it's an effort it's an effort to love one's neighbor just the same as oneself first one has to actually learn to love oneself but then to love the neighbor the neighbor the same way or be just as concerned about children anywhere than one is about one's own i mean this is an effort but when it is seen quite clearly that all this separation and this mindness is nothing but an idea which has no basis in absolute reality it all becomes much easier to do it's um, much easier to have that feeling of lovingness when one has a feeling of totality makes life much easier and then of course the the craving to be separate and the craving to be becomes less at that time because the totality exists anyway so what does it matter whether there's one more bit in that or not but the totality has to become a fact and not just um, an idea they used to have a newspaper somewhere in new south wales and coming from some farm i can't remember where it was and this little newspaper was called we are all one wonderful marvelous you never make it until you get to the experience of it it's a lovely idea i fully agree with it but you got to experience it otherwise it's an it's just an idea in fact it's a debatable idea people can debate about it one doesn't have to even agree with it what does it actually mean we're all one without having experienced it are we really or what we all look different so that is the insight which arises automatically one doesn't even have to put one's mind to it because the mind that comes out of the infinity of space has seen this quite clearly and if there is no direction or guidance it does happen that people come to these things spontaneously i've had several um well maybe a handful of people in courses who have done this uh, 20 years ago and 30 years ago and it's good because they didn't have a clue what it was but with the direction it isn't at all anything to fear it is something to welcome very much because the again it also creates afterwards after it's finished it creates a lightness in the mind there's nothing to hang on to we don't have to keep it it doesn't matter it's all there anyway whether i'm there or not makes no difference creation is universe is nothing else to be done about it so it creates lightness in mind less clinging less craving and it creates a feeling of um, relief not um, unlike 
but much less enforced than the uh, less relief but similar to the relief one feels when there is actually a path moment but it isn't to be confused with that because the path moment has no observer the jhana does there is the observer in this case quite strongly because the observer knows this space somebody's got to be there to know all this and that's the observer naturally it's not the same as when one has this um, marketplace mentality that's a different one that's an observer that keeps talking all the time and liking and disliking in the in the jhanas the observer doesn't say anything and uh, doesn't like or dislike but it's still there but in the past moment isn't so that actually this particular differentiation which I have already mentioned once before is very important to know because it is most likely the most significant difference now having experienced this infinity of space the next step is the infinity of consciousness and it is um, very um, related so that one only needs to turn one's mind from that experience of space to the one that's experiencing it namely consciousness one has to have an infinity of consciousness in order to experience infinity of space the two are completely related just like first and second jhana are totally related if one has this very delightful sensation joy has to come from that all one has to do in first and second jhana take the mind off the delightful sensation and put it to that which is the result namely joy here is the same thing in fifth and sixth having had infinity of space as an experience obviously something has to experience this which is infinity of consciousness now it very often also happens in this particular one that it feels as if the mind which we seem to be carrying around up here of course we don't but this seems to be where we are carrying it that from there an expansion but not physical not a physical feeling of being there but the feeling of having an a limited mind the feeling of having a mind which is mine a feeling of mind limitation starts growing growing going further and further and having had the infinity of space experience it doesn't have any barriers or stops it doesn't stop anywhere it just becomes quite clear that this consciousness which we have which is the meaning in the meaning of awareness is not our own it is also unlimited and exists and knowing that having that existence it has to be there because otherwise this infinity of space is impossible knowing that one loses even more profoundly the idea of a personal being and with more impact 
the totality of existence is experienced because body or right body we have already discussed this we maybe we are very agreed to the fact that we're not the body even though we don't feel it but we have agreed to it intellectually we're not the body but mind that's a different story if that's not even my mind well that experience really um, knocks this I, me, mine illusion uh, quite thoroughly and um, although the feeling of me look at me how nice I can meditate certainly reappears after coming out of the jhanas in fact it might um, immediately reappear going back in one's mind to that experience again and again and experiencing it again and again does minimize this illusion and delusion and therefore this is a pathway to give it up completely intellectual understanding will never do it and momentary concentration which is also sometimes in some schools of thought considered to be sufficient is something that we can all do without meditating we can all momentarily concentrate in fact if we didn't we'd probably all be dead by now momentary concentration just isn't enough it's called Kanika Samadhi and it's certainly not taught by the Buddha it's in the commentaries mentioned and the schools of thought that say that that is sufficient um, have not probably investigated this um, particular thing so momentary concentration is something that we can all do uh, this what I'm describing the jhanas absorptions means full concentration and being absorbed in something means that one can actually take it in now you probably all have read a book at one time or another which was so fascinating that you became so absorbed in it that you stayed up till three o'clock in the morning trying to finish it because it was so interesting and then having finished it and having taken it all in being really absorbed in it and not being sidetracked at all then one also knows what's in that book and one may be able to use some of the things which if it was about some insights or wisdom well this kind of absorption is what happens in meditation when the mind finally stops all its um, outer connections and it becomes so fascinating and interesting that time flies and it's impossible to actually know how long one has been in it therefore if one becomes skilled at the jhanas one should before going in make a determination how long one wants to stay in it an exact determination and that one has to learn also to do exactly the right length of, not exactly the length of time that one has determined there is a possibility of staying in it for a very long time but that in itself does not really bring about any great advantage a very short moment also is not enough 
to become a master of the jhanas, one has to be able to make, get in there anytime one wants to, stay in it as long as one wants to, go from any one to any other without the natural progression from one to eight, and come out of it and recognize what happened. In other words, have the insight which follows. First one has to, of course, go in the natural order, one to eight, so that one gets to know them all and get the benefit from them all. Now, the infinity of consciousness is a state of experience which underwrites the totality completely. If my body isn't mine, well, all right then, but if the mind is not a personal mind, then, of course, it looks entirely different. The mind, we are all very proud that we have a good mind, an intelligent mind, and a compassionate one, whatever else we think we've got. And we have only this idea of mine because we identify. And we like to, some people like to identify with only the nice things they've got. Some people identify with only the awful things they've got. If one has any kind of sense, one identifies with nothing. But we all identify until enlightenment with something. So here, there is no identification possible. It is infinite, the consciousness. And obviously, when we come back into our ordinary state of being, there's nothing infinite. There's a body sitting there, and there's a mind in it which knows that the body is sitting there, and that's about all we get. So, in that experience, we recognize quite um, strongly that we are part of this totality if we put our mind to it. If we don't put our mind to it, we remain a separate individual with all its problems. But if we put our mind to this particular understanding and experience, then that's what we are, part of it all. And we can, therefore, also recognize the fact that we can partake of whatever we choose because all of it exists in the infinity of consciousness. So if we choose to partake of that which is unwholesome, that's what we've got. If we choose to partake of that which is uh, unhappy, detrimental, if we choose to partake of those things, well, that's what we've got in our mind. It's all available. But if we choose to partake of... If we choose to uh, take only that into our mind, which is joyous and peaceful, helpful and beneficial, well, that's what we've got. When we experience the totality of the consciousness which exists in this um, existence, then we realize that we can make choices. And making choices means that if, unless we're very foolish, that we will choose that which is the positive. And a mind which has that intention will have the ability. It's the intention which counts. Until we believe that we've got to take potluck, whatever 
the mind throws up we haven't got intention the um, this potluck affair of our mind is what the ordinary person does whatever comes well that that's what's there but that's not necessary and this is a very important step that arises out of this experience because after any of these experiences infinity of space infinity of consciousness obviously the mind needs to investigate what this experience means and that is the value then what did this mean for me not just um, the thought may arise oh gee I'm really good now I've got the six no that's not good enough it's uh, it's not an, a number system it's not a numbers game it's uh, an inside arising out of the concentrated mind mind state the insight into only existence and nothing else makes all all mystic experiences clear they are part of the mystic experience now mysticism is not mystery mysticism is a change of consciousness and mysticism has always existed and exists now and the change of consciousness is that which makes it possible for a human being to live in this life on a different level of consciousness doesn't mean that one has to stop doing the things one has to do on the contrary one does them quickly and immediately and without any great bother the next one after that is called the base of nothingness that's an interesting word isn't it and often in buddhism there is this word nothing bandied about and also in meditation and people usually what they usually talk about when mean when they talk about that means that they have finally stopped thinking and that's nothing then nothing in their mind just fine but it isn't meaning the meaning isn't that at all i think i would prefer to call it emptiness but that too of course people have different ideas what that means so if we look at it this way maybe that becomes a little clearer if we come into this room we see cushions a shrine and people and mats all sorts of things are in here so immediately the mind identifies and it latches on to what the eye sees but it latches on to its opinion about it um maybe it thinks oh that's very nice this room's a meditation room or it thinks it's funny why do they have all these cushions should have chairs whatever it is and then one takes a whole kit and caboodle out of this room everything so then it's empty 
totally empty. And that's the emptiness that we experience and finally also know. The infinity of space and the infinity of consciousness contain nothing. There is only the, the space first and then the consciousness being aware of it and that's it. So this third step is a follow-on from these first two just like in the first three jhanas, the contentment arises automatically from having got the joy. They all follow each other. So then, having seen these two, the space and the consciousness, where there's nobody in that, then what arises in the mind is a vast expanse as vast as the others and there's absolutely nothing in it it's empty and that reinforces the understanding in the mind that although there are these things and people and trees and nature and all these things that arise they also cease and they arise out of craving and because in the infinity of space and consciousness there is no craving and there is also nothing that can be separated out this emptiness then makes it clear that there is nothing anywhere to be found which would be give us a hold on anything there is nothing that we can find that would be a safe spot there's nothing that we can find that we can hang on to and if we then later examine that we can find that that's quite true there's nothing and all the things that people have made up because they know that there's nothing here are just words and one of them is the word God which as I said last night Master Eckhart already completely refuted and said that's only an imagination but that's something to hang on to now people make up other words to hang on to but having seen the experience having had the experience that nothing there that we can actually put our finger on and say aha this is for me this is what I'll keep this is what I'll have of course takes one away from this craving to be secure now the person who realizes these things in the mind without the jhanic experience will at such a moment feel quite bereft as if the rug was pulled out from under one that's why it's necessary to have the jhanic experience not only in order to fortify it to know this is it I've got it I see it the actual personal experience but also because within the jhanic experience there is no dukkha while one has them it's impossible to either refute it or to have any feeling of being bereft of something or having lost something on the contrary 
the feeling of having gained something. One has gained the ability to recognize in the mind an absolute reality. So this base of nothingness or emptiness is then a very um, profound experience for the mind which naturally all of these jhanic states are impermanent because one can't sit in meditation 24 hours a day it's highly unlikely that anybody's ever done that I've heard people say they meditated 18 hours a day I've never met anybody actually who's done it but I've heard people say these things and it isn't so but whatever time one spends on experiencing this there's a residue the residue of insight and this residue of insight permeates one's being it's impossible to have these experiences and not have a change of consciousness it's absolutely impossible now that change of consciousness does not mean that the me illusion is given up that happens, has to happen at the past moment but it certainly means that the me illusion must be a little less strong and the experiences of those three steps must bring one an expansion of understanding which does not disappear primarily so because of the explanations the Buddha gave if one just experiences that without any guidance any explanation it can have two effects one I've already mentioned one can become afraid of it because it's very different from anything that is uh, in the everyday mentality or one can just disregard it because one can't sort it in and that's not uncommon although it seems to be quite pleasant it's not understood and therefore not does not bring the real value and that happens sometimes when people have a spontaneous um, experience like that sometimes a spontaneous experience like that comes out of enormous grief it's not I have never met anyone where it has come out of enormous joy so again Dukkha is our best teacher and unless we uh, use it wrong I have met people where it came out of an enormous grief situation a spontaneous experience of one of these uh, immaterial jhanas but having no idea what it was it wasn't really valuable and only when they finally got to the teaching and got the instructions or the um, guidelines then they were actually those people were able to repeat it which is quite interesting because um, in some cases it was 20, 30 years ago and they'd never been able to repeat it but the minute they got the instructions and knew what to do they could repeat it so the mind was able but didn't have the necessary um, intention
The intention wasn't there because it had happened spontaneously. So the intention is important. Directing the mind towards these states and knowing that they're there and directing the mind. In fact, the uh, intention is the concentration of attention is one of the pathways to power. So we, I may still talk about that too. So now we have the five, six, and seven jhanas. The reason the numbers are being used is just to make it uh, simple to remember what they are. And progressively, each one gives an has more impact to recognize that there is no separate person, no separate entity. There is nothing in the whole of creation that will keep us safe and together because there is nobody that can be kept safe and together because all of this creation has nothing but movement in it. Now that also happens in this number seven, in the base of nothingness, that some people experience it as a vibration, a very strong vibration, with nothing where one can put one's finger on. Not everybody has this vibration, some people do. The eighth jhana is called neither perception nor non-perception and because of that it's not an inside jhana. It is an extension of the fourth one. The fourth one in its depth is um, nothing but stillness. Whereas, and there is an observer of the stillness but a very minor and minute one. Whereas here in the eighth one, one doesn't perceive the stillness. The stillness is, but one doesn't perceive it properly. So it is impossible to say anything about the eighth jhana, and the Buddha didn't. But what it does do is that it is the greatest regenerator of energy for the mind. Because here, the mind does not even have anything in it other than that state of complete relaxation, complete peace, and doesn't even recognize that. So it doesn't have to actually perceive anything. The reason it's called neither perception nor non-perception is because it's not asleep, It's not in a trance, it's completely awake, and yet it doesn't really know anything. It gives a great deal of energy, which is the trigger for clarity. The clear mind needs enormous energy, mind energy. And this because it ha- the energy is the factor that removes the dross 
and the uh, all the um, obscurations and convolutions so it is a very um, the important state but it doesn't bring any insight at all because there's nobody there during that time to recognize anything so afterwards when one comes out of it well there's nothing to be recognized either it is one could say it's, it's can we can use it as a generator the non-perceiving at that time is not the same as the epitome of mindfulness where the sense contact is known only as the sense contact because here in the eighth jhana there is no sense contact so we don't have that uh, to compare it with there is and this is just as a matter of interest a ninth step which is sometimes called the ninth jhana but usually called niroda and that is only available to the non-returner to the arahant and it is a state which could last for seven days and where the person appears to be dead but they're not the um, the heart is still beating but everything has slowed down to such an extent that even there's a certain coldness to the limbs there's no movement whatsoever and it has in the past sometimes uh, in the Buddhist time and also in India later been used by yogis that were able to do this in order to regenerate the body it does that very effectively but because it is of course only for non-returners and arahants not so many people can do that and also it, it requires the ability of mastery over the eight jhanas so it is a rare occurrence and uh, it is um, the person sits quite straight in the meditation posture but um, appears to have no life at all and there is no it is even less of perceiving than in the eighth jhana there is nothing happening at all so it has a regeneration process taking place um, it's a rare thing and it's only as a matter of uh, interest that I'm mentioning it it is not necessary for enlightenment now again for the jhana, for enlightenment any of the jhanas will do the Buddha said but he never said without them any of them even the first one but because the first one's a little exciting and because people don't usually practice enough one would say that a little more than that is needed the jhana itself does not bring the enlightenment it's a mind ability for the, which is necessary for the jhanas which makes it possible to go to the enlightenment state one can of, of course also do jhanas and not get enlightened at all that's possible 
But if one does it life after life, one would imagine that one day it will click. These jhanas, these meditative absorptions, were well known in the Buddhist time, in India, in the Brahmanical, Brahminical um, religion, Brahminical experience. And he had two teachers. The first one taught him up to the seventh, and the second taught him the eighth. Now these two teachers both thought, and this was the common way of thinking, and even can be found very commonly today still in India, that the first one thought seventh jhana was the highest point of realization that anybody could come to, and the next one thought the eighth was. So they, when he had reached the seventh, and in the other case when he had reached the eighth, each teacher said to him that he should now become the teacher, because he was doing it very well, and he had reached everything that could be done, achieved everything that could be done. Well, having achieved the eighth jhana, and having heard the teacher say that, he, the Buddha himself, who was not the Buddha then, he was a Bodhisattva, recognized that the jhanas are fine but if you come out of them you can have dukkha again namely the dukkha of birth decay, disease and death that's not eliminated you still have that and disease is dukkha and death is dukkha and birth is dukkha so these things were still there that nothing had changed. So there was no teacher that could teach the um, inside path. So he went off on his own. And that's when he sat under the Bodhi tree in what is now Bodhgaya and went up to the eighth jhana and down again to the first and it doesn't say how many times he did that but he had decided he was going to sit there as long as was necessary even if the flesh would rot from the bones so that he would find out how to eliminate all dukkha so he said for a week and it doesn't give exact description whether he got up or not and what he did and as he went up through the jhanas up and down again he then realized in the mind the enlightenment factor and formulated that in the Four Noble Truths and as he formulated it in the Four Noble Truths he then saw quite clearly that our craving to be is the trigger for all dukkha. So the only way to get rid of dukkha is not crave to be. And that is only possible if we find out that the whole idea of me is an illusion. And that's how the teaching started. And the first discourse which he gave then 
is called the Dhamma Chakra Pavarna Sutta, which means, Sutta means the discourse, means the turning of the wheel of the Dhamma. Dhamma Chakra is the wheel of the Dhamma. And he gave that to five companions that he had practiced with at these teachers that were teaching the jhanas. These five companions also uh, were there and learned the jhanas, and, but didn't go off to find enlightenment. They were quite um, satisfied with the jhanas and also with the asceticism which they were practicing. So he first wanted to teach his two teachers because this is a, in the Indian tradition the spiritual teacher is considered to be the most important person and has the greatest um, support and help so he wanted to teach those two teachers show them their um, inside the enlightenment but they had both died so then he picked his five companions that had uh, been with him and taught them and at the end of the discourse one of them became enlightened and the Buddha said Kandanya sees, Kandanya knows and this one was enlightened and then they all they were the first Buddhist monks those five and the other four got enlightened immediately later after that because they had been practicing very well for those years with the Buddha the Buddha was six years in the forest um, with those two teachers and uh, first with the one then with the other and those companions were there too they're usually called the five ascetics because they were practicing asceticism the Buddha had done to that too but had seen that that wasn't the answer so the the jhanas are the stepping stones each one brings a new view a new aspect but the inside path which I've already explained is then necessary and usually the way we practice it both practicing both calm and insight a little bit of insight brings a little bit of calm a little bit of calm brings a little bit of insight so we try to become calm but at other times also investigate into insight with any of the methods I've already talked about with any of the step-by-step -step understanding that we get from our own introspection through mindfulness so that might be enough on that subject you can ask questions if you like so other way around your mind is exactly where you put it so if you are thinking of your left toe that's where the mind then is so if you put your mind to with the intention to experience infinity of space well you'll get there that's where the mind's going to be 
But if the mind keeps on thinking about what it's going to eat tomorrow or what, whether it's going to, you know, uh, meet somebody or have a have an, uh, some sort of uh, worldly experience, well, that's where the mind is. It can go anywhere. Yes, we always think it's up here. Well, that also has the reason for that is also that not only I think that the senses are there um, mostly, but also because the brain is there. You know, physically the brain is located there. And so we probably have that idea. But the mind and the brain are not the same thing. Because you can have a brain without a mind. And the brain is dead because the brain is there, but there's no mind with it. So the, the mind can be wherever we put it, in the left hand. So, what else? You're going to have to think up some questions because tomorrow evening <laughs> it's going to be a question evening and if you don't have any questions we're just going to sit here totally mute and stare at each other. <laughs> so I'm also, I'm just saying that already ahead of time so that meanwhile you can look through your little bookkeeping or whatever ever in the head or in the book and uh, find out what you would like to question what, so when you think about it maybe something will arise tomorrow evening it's like a um, well I don't want to make it an examination but a recapitulation so anything that, that you want to know and if you don't want to know anything we'll just sit here No, a meditation teacher in Thailand said that. I think I thought I heard you quote, quote from the Buddha saying that. No, a very well-known meditation teacher in Thailand said that. I thought in one of the Buddha's discourses also. No, no. he <laughs> certainly said we shouldn't waste our lives, yes. But he didn't say that if you don't become a stream entry, you've wasted your life. He figured that if you didn't get enlightened, it wasn't a waste of time. Right. Well, <laughs> <laughs> okay. so, well that's, that's the same thing. So yeah. if, you didn't, if you didn't aim towards enlightenment, that you're wasting a good human life, I, I thought that I've heard you say that. No, well, to this time I said about this particular teacher who said about stream entry. Right. Anyway, um, so presumably there's a, a lot of good human lives going to waste. Mm. And <laughs> um, Many people feel incapable or don't really want to go that far with their practice. They want to, um, would like to learn about meditation and they would like to learn about Buddhism. And for various reasons, they might find the whole thing too daunting altogether if they thought that that was where the path was aiming. Um, I wondered if you could talk a little bit about the benefits. 
aspects of the practice of meditation and of Buddhism, um, then there are many benefits I've personally found along the wayside um, that would be encouraging to people who are not, not intending to go so far. Well, it's quite likely that nobody intends to go that far when they first start. I, had, I don't remember that I had any intention like that. I mean, the word enlightenment wasn't even in my vocabulary. And I, I, I wanted to learn meditation because it seemed like an interesting thing to do. I, I don't think anybody starts out like that. I mean, there's a few people who do, might be already very far along the path. So, um, I think that what happens is that as you become more uh, proficient at meditation and understand the Buddha's teaching better, you will see that that is where you're actually aiming at. But in the beginning you have many other things, of course, that happen, and those are, well, you get a little more peaceful, I would think, when the meditation works a bit. And also, if you start to use mindfulness, you become aware of the fact that the whole thing is happening within you, and you don't put it outside anymore. You don't blame the triggers anymore. You know, you see that it's happening within you, and therefore you could change it. You know, if you have enough um, willpower, you can change it. So that, I think, is one of the greatest uh, advantages that you get, that you recognize it's all yours, to do with as you please. It's not out there at all. It's not somebody else. It's all yours. I think this is probably the best thing. Um, very often, one hears... Um, in the, especially in this tradition, um, monks say that the best thing that happened to them was that they now keep at least the five precepts or the ten precepts, whatever they call them, usually the five. Um, well, that too, of course, is helpful to keep the precepts because then you don't get into a real bind with, um, you know, messed up relationships and that type of thing, which is usually a bit of a tragedy for people. And if it goes any further, well, of course, then it's even worse. You know, so that kind of level of practice is, is uh, extremely helpful. But then, on a little higher level, I think the best thing is, is that you find out that it's all all you, and not somebody else. And the um, the the change of one thinking habits, and then the understanding of the purification of one's emotions. So all these things are, must be help everybody. And I think. As one practices further, and if the meditation works, then eventually it dawns on one that that's what one is actually practicing for enlightenment. And, uh, you know, that's, um, um, that is sort of like it comes on the path. I don't think one starts like that. I have never heard anybody say that when they first started, that they came to get enlightened. I've never heard anybody say that. Usually people come because they want to get a bit, bit of peace of mind. They're getting they're tired of all this rummaging around that goes on, you know. And then, of course, they sit down and meditate, and then they still don't get any peace of mind. <laughs> because of that, do you think it's a good idea for quite a long time, if you're advising a friend, particularly somebody who is ill, to concentrate on the type of meditation rather than an inside type? one that would bring them peace of mind so that they could then go on to that so that, um, you know, if you would encourage them, I know that you teach a lot 
um, about not blaming yourself and mm. substituting something that's a wholesome state of mind. So that if somebody was at a stage, let's say their bodily decay was too far advanced for them to probably ever reach the stage where they were ever going to get a lot of insight, that mm. um, you might just concentrate on, on helping them to uh, generate positive states of mind. Mm. Oh yes, certainly. Um, in the in the Buddhist um, tradition, uh, the one's attention for a, a dying person or a terminally ill person uh, is considered to be that one reminds that person, if one knows him or her, of all the good things they've done, so that their state of mind becomes positive, and um, that uh, you know, especially if they have. Uh, near relatives who can say these things, you know, that are really the good things they've done. Because most people who haven't practiced are lying on their deathbed uh, with remorse of the things they haven't done or regrets that about things they have done. But to remind them of the good things, so that state changes the mind. And I think that the insight well, I don't know, if somebody's very ill and has never meditated before, I don't see how they could get a calm meditation wouldn't help them at all, I, because I don't think they can do it. I think, and this is what happened in the Buddhist time, when Anatta Pindika, who was a millionaire, was dying, Buddha Sensari put it to him. Now, it doesn't ever say that Anatta Pindika used to meditate. It's never mentioned. He was a great supporter of the Buddha. He was a millionaire supporter. And he bought him his first monastery, the Jeta Grove, Anatapinika's monastery. He was a businessman, an exporter, an importer. And when he was lying on his deathbed, 